Chapter Three of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Three. Rebellion Year, eighteen eighty-five, Regina. On March tenth, in response to a telegram from Ottawa. Colonel Irvine left Regina with four officers, 86 non-commissioned officers and men, and 66 horses, en route to Prince Albert, 291 miles distant. This journey was made in seven days, the average daily travel being 42 miles, which, considering the short days and the severe weather, was pretty good travelling. His departure left the headquarter post with myself and 32 non-commissioned officers and men, and no horses. Fortunately, the Indian Department had a few ponies, which they were able to lend us, and with them we had to do the best we could. At the end of March, a cipher telegram from Ottawa announced that 300 men in Chicago had bound themselves together by oath to invade Canada in the interests of the half-breeds, and that their objective point in the first instance would probably be Moose Jaw, 40 miles west of Regina. Although I did not take this proposition very seriously, I could not, of course, neglect any responsible precaution, and so opened negotiations with some Sioux Indians, who had been for some time camped in the neighborhood of Moose Jaw, with a view to engaging them as scouts, but the negotiations fell through, chiefly owing to the difficulty in mounting them. It happened that just about that time, a man named Louis Legare, who lived at Wood Mountain, a settlement about ninety miles southeast of Regina, came into town to represent to the lieutenant governor that a large number of half-breeds in his neighborhood were in a starving condition, that they wished to remain where they were so as not to be implicated in any way with the rebellion, and that they would be glad of any employment which would keep the wolf from the door. Legare undertook to see that the work was properly done, and to vouch for the good faith of the men for whose selection he would be held responsible and this arrangement having been sanctioned in ottawa forty scouts were engaged and an officer was sent to wood mountain to supervise proceedings at this year's session of the dominion parliament the strength of the force was increased from five hundred to one thousand men and in order to provide accommodation for them a number of large square tents etc were sent to us from Ottawa. These we pitched round the barrack square in the intervals between the portable houses. On May 3rd, a telegram was handed to me. 130 recruits will reach you at midnight and require supper. The men duly arrived. It took us several days to get them all clothed and settled down, for our stock of clothing, etc., was entirely insufficient and we ransacked all the shops in the town to buy the necessary underclothing, blankets, etc. Considering that there was not much money in circulation, this was a godsend to the local storekeepers. This consignment was the first of about 600 men who joined us in the course of the year. As soon as their training was completed, the men composing each squad were dispatched to one point or another in different parts of the country. Of the recruits, I can only say that they were the finest and best-behaved lot of men that I have ever been connected with. They gave no trouble and settled down to learn their business with determination. 
in consequence of a little incident that occurred when there were from 250 to 300 men under canvas it occurred to me to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with them i was impelled to this by various considerations to explain the chief one of which i must hark back a little colonel irvine soon after his arrival at prince albert on march twenty fourth received from the comptroller at ottawa a telegram which read major-general commanding militia proceeds forthwith to red river on his arrival in military operations take orders from him now colonel irvine having discussed the subject with the leading men of the neighbourhood and being in possession of all the ascertainable facts had come to the conclusion that it was his duty to place prince albert in as defensible a position as was possible in the circumstances and to protect the many women and children who were gathered there he accordingly refused to abandon his helpless charges and to move out into the field the force at his command was not sufficient to admit of his doing both things general middleton had enough men with him to eat the rebel half-breeds moccasins and all but seemed to have some ridiculous ideas about the risking of human life and hesitated and demurred until colonel william's regiment got tired of being made fools of and rushed the half-breed trenches out of which the dusky occupants scrambled without any ceremony whatever and were lost to sight it was this redoubtable outfit that general middleton wanted colonel irvine's force to attack from the rear without giving him any instructions to that effect and without making any plans to that end and because colonel irvine did not do so the gallant general permitted himself to say on one occasion alluding to the mounted police where are these gophers why don't they come out of their holes that expression naturally ran round the country and i made it the text of a sermon which i preached to my men whom i formed up in three sides of a hollow square i began by telling them how very gratified i was at the manner in which they had got down to business and hoped that they would continue in well-doing i said in effect we are not playing at soldiers here we have got the strictest and most tedious kind of duty to perform we have upwards of fifty rebel prisoners to guard and if any one of you men fail in his vigilance when on guard disaster may ensue we have as you know nine sentries posted round the barracks at night and the safety of all government property depends on the ceaseless attention of each of those nine men take the hay corral for instance what is there to prevent some evil disposed person from crawling up to that haystack and setting it on fire there is nothing to prevent it but the vigilance of the sentry the stables are locked it is true but there are over a hundred horses picketed in the stable yard what an easy matter it would be for two or three rebels to ride into those lines and stampede those horses while attention was being devoted to the burning haystack under cover of the double excitement it is conceivable that an attempt might be to rush the guard-room but i want you all to understand that under no circumstances whatever are the guards to leave their prisoners they have positive orders to that effect their rifles are loaded and they will not hesitate to use them i tell you these things in order to impress upon each man of you the responsibility that rests upon you the whole of the northwest knows and you know that the general officer commanding the militia has so far forgotten himself as to apply the term gopher to our comrades in the north are you content to remain under such a reproach 
I tell you candidly that I am not, but I cannot remove it without your help. Will you help me to remove it? You are aware that Parliament has increased the strength of this force from 500 to 1,000 men. That means that 500 additional men will be trained in these barracks this year, and you are part of that number. The addition of 500 men cannot fail to have an influence upon the force as it existed a few weeks ago. Is that influence to be for good or for bad? Are we still to be called gophers and to submit to the jeers of the criminal classes whom we are to control? Or are we to earn the respect of all right-thinking men in this northwest world by proving ourselves to be the best disciplined and the most efficient corps in Canada? It will be a proud day for me if ever that time should come, and I believe it will come. Will you think it over and make up your minds? Will you in your barrack rooms cultivate a little esprit de corps? Will you consider the responsibilities that lie ahead of you in policing these vast territories, and determine first to learn, and then to do your duty with honour to yourselves and your corps, and with benefit to the people amongst whom you may have to live and work? You can do it if each one of you will harden his hearts and stiffen his back and say to himself, I will. But the issue rests with you and not with me. I can only hope for the best. Sergeant Major, dismiss the parade. As a matter of fact, the men were so keen that I do not believe a cat could have crept through the line of centuries unseen. They picked up one man who had the appearance of a tramp, but who had a pocket full of matches. He had, of course, a plausible tale to tell about having been trying to get employment from ranchers, etc., and, beyond locking him up for the night, there was no adequate reason for punishing him as a vagrant. He was thus sent away in the morning and advised not to stop in town. He went a few miles eastward, as far as a place called Balgoni, where there was a railway bridge, and to this he set fire. We soon gathered him into the fold again, and this time he went to the Manitoba Penitentiary for two years. In the autumn of the year, the town of Regina got some athletic sports, and our men were invited to participate. One event was a tug-of-war, and for this there were three entries, namely the town team, the Montreal Garrison Artillery, and ourselves. The artillery team were easily beaten by the town, who had a very good team, including a powerful, big man, who stood about six feet six inches, and whose build and weight were in adequate proportion. Him they placed at the tail end of the rope as anchor, and they thought themselves unconquerable. For my part, in my old corps, I had seen little of tug-of-war teams trained by expert gunnery instructors, and when the police team was finally chosen and got down to work, my impression was that there was nothing in western Canada to touch it. It turned out just as I expected. The police team never budged. They held their opponents while they pulled themselves out, and then, very gradually, but very surely, hauled them across the line. As soon as the tug-of-war was over, I turned aside to talk to the lieutenant governor and Mrs. Dudeney, who were close by in their carriage, and had hardly had time to say a few words before a woman clutched my arm and said, Stop them! I looked to see where she was pointed, and saw that a merry, free fight had begun between the men and the riffraff of the townspeople. I ran into the fray, and the first man I came across was a hot-headed Irish corporal who held a townsman by the throat and was choking the life out of him. I ordered him to let the man go, but he affected not to hear me, 
or not to recognize my voice, so I took hold of his face with both hands, and turning it so that he could not help seeing who I was, said, If you don't drop that man this instant, I'll give you six months tomorrow morning. He let go of the man, fell back and saluted, and I said, Fall the men in over there, indicating a spot by a wave of my arm, and tell them off into sections. I went to the judge's stand and told him I was very sorry that any unpleasantness should have arisen over a simple tug-of-war, in which the police were unquestionably the winners in a fair and square pull, that the police would not touch the prize which they had legitimately won, and that, as the mounted police were maintained in the territories, to keep the peace and not break it, it was my intention to take them all home immediately to their barracks. By the time these remarks were concluded, my men were fallen in and told off, and away they went. They sang themselves home over two and a half miles of prairie between the town and the barracks, and the town was left. The lieutenant governor and some of the prominent residents left the ground in disgust. In the course of that evening, the mayor sent me, through the town police station, a telephone message urging me to send a patrol to keep order in the town, as a great number of rowdies were causing alarm to the peaceable citizens. I had left but one constable in the station to attend to telephone messages, and him I directed to take my compliments to the mayor, and say that the appearance of a mounted police patrol strong enough to take the rowdies into custody would be likely to cause more disturbance than existed, and might possibly cause bloodshed. I emphatically declined, therefore, to provoke any such breach of the peace, and advised him to swear in special constables to deal with the situation. I concluded by saying, the town will have to police itself tonight in any event. After all, nothing happened. The reputable people were kept awake for some hours by the disreputable element, but the whole trouble had simmered down before the morning. In the course of the forenoon, I called my men together and said to them, I told you not long ago that if you would go on doing your duty as you had done it, up to that time you might easily become the best disciplined armed force in Canada. I can this morning go a deal further than that, and say to you, after your magnificent exhibition of discipline on the athletic grounds yesterday afternoon, when despite the fact that angry passions were aroused, and there was every prospect of a disastrous row, you answered the call of duty and left your traducers and assailants in contemptuous silence. I say to you that it rests only with yourselves to become the finest force of constabulary in the world, for you have shown to the Northwest public that you can control yourselves. You have learned the discipline of the Royal Marines. I am proud of you, men, and I thank you for what you have done. I was very much annoyed during the sitting of the Louis Riel Court when one day General Middleton's aide-de-camp handed me a half-sheet of note-paper on which was written, The General will inspect the police at ten o'clock tomorrow morning, by order, etc. We were not under the militia department. We were not engaged in military operations, seeing that we were an assize court. And the commissioner of the mounted police, a stipendary magistrate, was to my mind entitled to at least a more courteous notification than this intimation handed to his adjutant by the general's aide, and my blood fairly boiled. I tried to get Colonel Irvine to object to this inspection, but could not succeed. At 10 a.m. next day, the parade was drawn up, ready for inspection. 
The men were all sized according to the uniform that had been issued to them, and irrespective of the stages of their training, and the general officer commanding the militia rode up and down the rank, and then went off to inspect the tents, etc., in which the men lived. I told the commissioner before his high mightiness arrived that if the general should say anything about drill, he would have to wait until the afternoon, as it would take some time to sort the men into their various drill squads and rides. As it happened, nothing was said about drill, but the lieutenant governor remarked to me afterwards, The general was very pleased with the parade, but there was no drill. No, I replied, I took good care of that. When I want General Middleton's assistance in training a force of constabulary, I shall be quite sure to ask him for it. Not long after this, the lieutenant governor went to Winnipeg, where a force of mounted infantry had been recently established. He had seen the men on a church parade, and came back full of their smartness, etc. Without in any way wishing to deprecate the Winnipeg men, I remarked, My night guard of thirty men or thereabouts mounts every evening at seven o'clock. Of course, I know that it is an inconvenient hour for you, but it is a pity that you cannot take a look at them. Because if there is anything smarter to be seen in Canada, I will apply for leave to go and see it. Towards the close of the year 1885, I was told by a man who was in the know that the government had decided to supersede Colonel Irvine in the following spring, and that there were three nominees for the position. First, Major, now Sir Edward, Hutton, Mr. Lawrence Hirchmer, and myself. Mr. Lawrence Hirchmer was a bosom friend of the Honourable Edward Dudney, and Mr. Dudney had Sir John Macdonald's ear. Mr. Hirchmer got the appointment. He was some five or six years older than myself, had served three or four years, it was understood, in a British infantry regiment, had tried the brewing business in Winnipeg, and then had been appointed as inspector of Indian agencies in the Northwest. A place called Birdle, in Manitoba, was the home from which he migrated to us. In 1887, when I was on recruiting duty in Ottawa, I took the trouble to ascertain, through the late Sir David Macpherson, then Minister of the Interior, and Mr. George Allen, then Speaker of the Senate, why these things were so. Sir David said that Mr. Hirchmer's father had been an old friend of Sir John MacDonald, who felt bound to do something for the son. Colonel Irvine had managed to acquire some very bitter enemies. One of these was Lieutenant Governor Edgar Dudney. Another was the late Nicholas Flood Davin, editor of the Regina Leader, and to these General Middleton appeared at this stage to have added himself. At all events, his idea was to have the mounted police transferred from the Prime Minister's own particular care to that of the militia department, and his reports of the inefficiency of the force were such that Sir John MacDonald at last resented them and decided to keep the police under his fatherly eye and not to hand them over to the militia department. An incident occurred some little time after Mr. Hertzimer's accession to power. A staff sergeant of the force had found a woman whom he desired to marry, but the autocrat of the mounted police set his face steadily against matrimony among the non-commissioned officers and men, and he said to the staff sergeant, There is a commission coming to you if you remain single, but you will have to choose between the commission and a wife. Thank you, sir, said the other. I'll take the wife. 
when this story was repeated to sir john he said i like his spirit he shall have the commission too and he gave it to the bridegroom colonel irvine was subjected to a great deal of very unfair misrepresentation i knew him for a gallant and honourable gentleman who would never have stooped to soil his fingers with the looted furs which subsequently formed the subject of a conversation in the canadian house of commons End of chapter three